For the last two Sundays, we have given consideration to how we are represented before God. Today is the third and final part of that specific, narrowed kind of focus. So if you would please turn your copy of the Christian New Testament to the book of Romans. Romans, and we'll be in chapter 5 today. Romans was written by the great Apostle Paul to the believers who were both Jew and Gentile who were residing in Rome. Paul had not yet met them. He was hopeful that one day he would meet them when he traveled to Spain and he was going to stop by Rome on his way to Spain there at a future date. And though the chapter and verse breaks of this epistle were added at a later date, Paul writes what amounted to 16 chapters that describe the undeserved, the unmatched, and the unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the, the theme of the letter, it's the theme of our studies. We walk verse by verse through this great epistle. We have identified six divisions of the epistle, and we're right on that third section, the assurance of the gospel. It runs from the beginning of chapter 5 all the way through chapter 8. So 5, 6, 7, and 8 are all centered around the bigger theme of the assurance that God gives to us through the gospel of Jesus. The apostles using these four chapters to give us confidence in our standing before God. So far in chapter 5, we have noted that we have peace with God because of the gospel. We have that through Jesus Christ. We have access to God. We have joy in God, even through times of suffering. We have love from God. God demonstrated His love toward us. And we are represented before God as we see in these last, the last half of chapter 5. This idea of this emphasis of assurance is intentional. It's God-ordained. It's profitable for your journey, brothers and sisters. It presupposes the lack of assurance by God's children at points. So I want to encourage you, not just today, but as we continue our trek through chapter 8 over the coming months, to lean into that focus, to be receptive of it, to enjoy it, to be assured of your standing before God. There are two representatives of humanity before God, the first and the second Adam. Adam of Eden and Jesus of Nazareth. In verses 12 through 14, we learned that the first Adam introduced humanity to sin. The first Adam experienced death. The first Adam bequeathed death to all of humanity. That first Adam was a type, a figure of the one who was to come. And then last week we looked at verses 15 through 18 and we learned that Jesus, the second Adam, provides for us a better trajectory. He gets off on the right foot because he is obedience unto death, even the death of the cross. We learned that Jesus provides the best eternal impact. He gives us life, everlasting life. And Jesus provides the best earthly journey, reigning in life. Now if you remember at the beginning of this, verse, when we started at verse 12, we said that this passage, verses 12 through 21, is, is a bit challenging because of the flow. Paul follows a couple of rabbit trails, if you will. He's comparing uh, Adam's work, and he's contrasting Adam's work as our representative before God with Christ's work 
as our representative before God. Paul points us to the obvious conclusion that Jesus is best. Jesus is our best representative before God. Now in verse 18, Paul returns to where he left off in verse number 12, following the parentheses, and he kind of picks up the thought from verse number 12. So we're going to read it. Would you please follow along as I read from God's Word, Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse number 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those that had not sinned after the likeness of Adam's transgression, who is the figure, or the type, of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. Remember, that means the free gift is nothing like the offense. The free gift is nothing like the condemnation of Adam. For if through the, the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Now our text for this morning. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're not yet a, a child of God, this text identifies the source of your only hope. Christian, for you, this text reminds you of your only hope, but it also per pushes you towards worship of the one who is that hope, who gives you that hope. Verse 18 picks back up from verse number 12. And verses 20 and 21 are kind of a, a capsule form of what's, what is to yet to come in chapters 6 and 7. It's kind of a preparation for chapters 6 and 7. And this last little bit of chapter 5 gives assurance that grace abounds beyond our sin. The end of verse 20 says that uh, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Think of the prefix hyper. It hyper-abounded. It's greater. Think of the prefix super or the word super. We talk, we use that word super in a lot of ways. Sometimes it describes a store. 
Some people think of a, a superstore as a store that offers everything you could possibly need here in our superstore. I can remember the time many years ago that Peyton and I were in Boscov's over at Park City, and we wanted to see if we could move faster than the down escalator. So we ran up the down escalator. I can remember the time we made it. Well, I can remember the time that I put Elise in the shopping cart at Giants, and I sprinted as fast as I could with the carts down the frozen food aisle. Those are the kinds of things that make a store super to me. That's a superstore. Now you know why Tara will never go shopping with me. The idea is super, hyper, greater abounding. Charles Spurgeon has a sermon on this text called Grace Abounding Over Abounding Sin. Here's the main idea from these four verses. Jesus lived a life I could not live. Jesus died a death I should have died. Jesus gives a life I should not have. Now, all I know is grace. First, we note the theology of abounding grace. Here's how abounding grace can happen even theologically. Here's how it's even possible. We read in verses 18 and 19. He, he says in Romans chapter 5, therefore, verse 18, as by one, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So a quick review from earlier in the passage. Paul's kind of, he's kind of summarizing here in verses 18 and 19. We, we all sinned in Adam. We are sinners by birth, and that comes to every human being. That's passed down to every human being because Adam sinned. But we're also sinners by choice. Every human being has, has chosen. Every human being throughout history has willfully rebelled against God's authority. We've trespassed. God's law. In the Garden of Eden, Adam represented each of us before God when he sinned against God. Adam's sin was universal. It carried the eternal consequence of condemnation for all of us. Then we see in verse number 17, the converse is also true. Christ also served as our representative before God, but the difference is that Christ did so sinlessly and therefore successfully. Christ's death on the cross also has an eternal consequence. But it's not, it's not a condemnation. It's life. It's eternal life. So while the result of Adam's action is reversible, the result of Christ's action is not reversible. So when we jump back into to Paul's line of thought here in verse 18 and 19, he summarizes the comparison between Adam and Christ, and he repeats those thoughts, and then he says... That Christ's one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Did you see that at the end, at the end of verse uh, 8? The free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. And we're going to unpack justification. And we're going to un unpack a little bit what it means to be made righteous. But before we do that, I want to give you just a, a quick uh, tip on verse number 18. Some false teachers, some false teaching will use verse 18 to defend their false teaching. 
Verse 18 ends with, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Verse 18 is not teaching universalism. When it says that justification of life come to all men, it's not saying that everybody in the world, all of humanity, will be justified by God. Paul is using parallelism. parallelism. In verse 15, he said many, when he's talking about both sides of the comparison. Look at verse 15. But not as the offense, so also is a free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. He does the same thing in verse number 18. He uses all men on both sides of the comparison. It's extremely clear from the full teaching of the epistle, from the full of, 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 the, of, the, of the Bible, that salvation only comes to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So, for instance, in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Only those who have faith in Christ are justified. Now, back to the big point of verses 18 and 19. Christ's one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. Well, what is this justification? We've considered it earlier in our study through Romans. This is God's act as judge where he declares someone to be in a right standing with him. They are declared to be okay, to be reconciled, to be righteous. It's God declaring someone to be right with him. And this is done within the bounds of justice. He also says that they are made righteous, to be made just or equitable. How can God declare us to be right if he has already declared us to be sinners that deserve condemnation? And here's the theology of abounding grace. Adam's disobedience caused humanity to be made sinners. Christ's obedience causes us, as we have faith in Christ, causes us to be made righteous. It might not be quite as clear uh, in, the, in the King James, but the ESV and the NIV get the, the full effect of verse number 18. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. The comparison is between one act of Adam and one act of Christ. Well, what is the one act of Christ? It's when he hung on the cross at Calvary and he shed his blood and that we might have forgiveness of our sins. So it's through Christ's obedience that we can be made righteous. So the question is not whether or not we are going to be saved by works. Rather, the question is by whose works will, will we be saved? Verse 19 tells us that salvation is hear it carefully, is by works. But it's by Jesus' works, not our works. We broke the law miserably. We rebelled against God completely. Then, because we're united to Christ, and what He has done in perfectly obeying the law, we're united to His obedience. So justification by faith alone means that we will not survive. There's no hope for us if we're pointing to our own works or to Adam's. But by trusting in someone else's works, Jesus's, there is hope. 
That is the theology of abounding grace. We deserve condemnation, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. But we are freely given righteousness and life. And this super abundant kindness is what, is what believers, gives believers absolute assurance of the life that is yet to come. Paul wants, to, wants us to understand that there can be assurance. There can be assurance of the justification and life that is promised. It's not debatable. The condemnation that follows Adam's sin is certain. But the justification and life that follows Christ's obedience is just as certain. So Christian, when Satan tempts you to despair, and he's busy telling you about the great failure that you are, and you start coming down on yourself, and you're remembering all of your sin, and when you are in the middle of failing, and you're in the middle of rebelling, rebelling against God, look to Jesus, who died in your place. His action of obedience is what counts. Your future doesn't depend on, on, on yourself. Your future depends on Jesus' past and present. That you obey, the reality, the fact that you obey God, is important, is important. But it's Jesus' obedience that secures your future, not yours. So spend time thanking Jesus that he obeyed in your place. Pray this way when you're with your kids. Train your kids, teach your kids to be thankful that Jesus obeyed in their place rather than teaching them that you need to obey for God to love you. You obey because you are thankful that Jesus obeyed in your place. Beloved of Harvest Bible Church, we are justified. We are made righteous even though we are sinners. And that is nothing less than the abounding grace of God. Jesus lived a life I could not live. Jesus died a death I should have died. Jesus gives me life I should not have. And now all I know is grace. Let's move on from the theology of abounding grace and secondly note the quantity of abounding grace. And here's how abounding grace can happen mathematically. Look at verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Paul tells us that the law came in to increase the trespass. The law was never meant to be a means of salvation in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, or any future time. The law was just a, a secondary element of God's plan of redemption, never intended to be a redemptive in and of itself. One pastor put it this way, disobedience to the law has never damned a soul to hell, and obedience to the law has never brought a soul to God. Sin and its condemnation were in the world long before the law, and so was the way of escape from condemnation. It's intriguing that Paul tells us that the law came in to increase the trespass. What does that mean? It's the same wording that Paul used in verse number 12. Just as sin came into the world, in verse 20, the law came in to increase the trespass. The law does something to sin. It has an effect on it. One of the, one of the beauties of creating something in the kitchen is how we learn that ingredients have an effect on other ingredients. 
I don't know a lot about that, but I'm told that happens. That ingredients affect other ingredients. When you mix together specific ingredients, they respond to one another. Some ingredients might change texture when they mix with other things that you've thrown into the bowl. One ingredient has an effect on another. This is how God's law is for us. God's law affects sin. God's law reveals our problem, that we are helpless, left to ourselves. The law defines sin for us. The law reveals sin's nature. The law exposes sin's power. The law uh, unveils sin's deceit. The law was given to intensify the seriousness of sin. So the law increases our sin in this sense. We are so wicked that every time God adds a new law, we want to take the opportunity to rebel and to plunge further into our disobedience. Through the law, the seriousness of sin intensifies for us. But a call to obedience is actually a tool of God's grace. The law was grace in itself because it teaches that we all fall short. And think about it this way. On the very mountain where God looked down and saw His people sinning and rebelling against Him, He also gives the specifics for the tabernacle and the altar and the priesthood and the whole sacrificial system. From the place where He gave the law, He gave instruction for this system whereby they could ask for seek forgiveness. It's the same in the New Testament. Peter denied Christ, but Jesus did not condemn Peter. In fact, Jesus appeared to Peter after the resurrection. Paul considered himself to be the chief of sinners, but also was shown mercy so that Christ would display his unlimited patience as an example for those who believe on Christ and receive eternal life. What is true for Peter? What is true for Paul is true for you. Friends, his, there, there is still grace for you. Have you ever thought of how many sins you've ever committed? Like the number of sins you've committed. Let's say you're 50 years old. Let's do some quick math. It means you've lived over 18,000 days. What if you sinned an average of six times a day? By thought, maybe coveting, lust, hatred. By word, gossip, slander, lying. Through, through a deed of unkindness or selfishness or stealing. That would be over 100,000 sins. But I think, just kind of letting you know how my life has gone, I think six sins a day sounds kind of generous. I mean, you don't remember how many times a day you sinned as a toddler, but what about a teenager? What about as young adults? What about as, as, adult, as old adults? Have we logged one million sins? Two million sins? How many sins have we committed? And it only took a single sin to condemn you. But we've each individually committed a myriad of sins, and that's the math. And, that's, and, and as they say, math doesn't lie. The sheer quantity of sins that we have committed is staggering. But here's what will blow your mind away. However many sins you or I have committed, a hundred thousand, a million, five million, or more, however many sins we have committed, there's still 
grace available. What? Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Though your sins are many, His mercy is more. Friend, whatever you have done to this point in your life, whatever horrific sins you have committed, whoever who is close to you, or maybe who is distant from you, that you have personally hurt, whatever decade you've committed those sins in, and however many times it happened, here is the message for you from this passage. God's grace superabounds to you. God's grace outquantifies your sin. There's more of His grace than there is of your sin. Nobody is beyond the grace of Christ. Nobody is beyond His grace. This changes, it should change, how we think about evangelism. We evangelize with hope that God will save anyone, maybe even the person who, from a human perspective, seems beyond reach. They are not beyond the reach of God's grace. Nobody is beyond the grace of Christ. So don't give up on your kids. When they are toddlers, there is grace. When they are teenagers, there is grace. When they are young adults, there is grace. When they are old adults, there is grace. God's grace superabounds. Now, this reality that there is more grace than sin should be noted that it is a motive, this reality is a motive for humility, not license. We will see this when we come to chapter 6, when Paul asks that question, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, by no means, of course not. Friend, when you ponder that God has offered you forgiveness and life and made you righteous and has justified you and done all of this in spite of your rebellion against Him, how can you not respond with holy living? Why would you not choose to live for Him? Brothers and sisters, see the quantity of abounding grace as a motive to live in obedience to God. We have literally sinned more times than we could count, but there is forgiveness. My friend, that is abounding grace. Jesus lived a life I could not live. Jesus died a death I should have died. Jesus gives a life I should not have. And now all I know is grace. We move from thinking about the theology of abounding grace, the quantity of abounding grace, and thirdly, in the first part of verse 21, we see the climax of abounding grace. Here's how abounding grace can happen practically. In verse 21 it says, that sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness. So just like sin reigned in death, now grace reigns through righteousness. One pastor put it this way, at the cross... We see the worst that sin can do, which is, as humanity, we crucified our Lord. But at the cross, we also see that the most that sin can do cannot thwart God's salvation plan. At the cross, grace overwhelms sin and life triumphs over death. Grace reigns through righteousness. 
This is, a, this is the, the Hena clause. This is the why clause. Why grace? So that it may reign in life. God shows superabounding grace because he is good. God does not want me to die. He, does not, he wants me to live. God shows superabounding grace so that I will go and do good. God wants me to show grace to others. Grace is not a one-time thing. Grace is not, a sing, is not to a single individual in time. Grace is multiplying. Grace is a present time reality, a current time. It's available, and it can reign in your life today. That means you don't have to yield to sin. You can resist temptation. You can show kindness to someone who you believe is undeserving of kindness. You can do the work of God as you are spirit-led. We are recipients of grace in order that we may be dispensers of grace to others. Friends, that is abounding grace. Finally, the chapter ends by pointing us to the channel of abounding grace. And here's how abounding grace can happen doxologically or to the praise of God. Verse 21 says that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life. How? By Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians 2 says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of, of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the channel. Jesus is the means. Jesus is the conduit of God's abounding grace to you. I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the story of the author who, who penned the text to It Is Well With My Soul. He lost his family. Uh, they, he, they perished. It's a sad story. Sta uh, Spafford wrote a hymn text that identified the channel of his personal assurance. He wrote, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. His hope was in a person, was in Jesus. The first Adam is not the last word for humanity. The second Adam, the perfectly obedient federal head, is the final word for humanity. There is no hope without Jesus. There is certain hope with and in Jesus. So eternal life doesn't come as a result of something that you or I do. That's impossible. It can only come through Jesus, through his death in our place. A death that he did not deserve, but that we certainly did deserve. My friend, that is nothing other than abounding grace. So friend, if you have not experienced abounding grace, this undeserved kindness of God, I invite you to do so even today. It's available to you today. God has placed you in this room on this day. Maybe for the, for the first time you've come to Harvest, or maybe you've been here hundreds of times, but you're hearing about the abundant, abounding grace of God. Are you willing to accept Christ's death in your place? God invites you to turn from your sin and to trust that Jesus died for you to appease God's anger for your myriad of sins. Will you do that? Will you invite Christ to be your Savior? Christian, your assurance is only found through the perfectly obedient federal head, 
Jesus Christ. He is the channel of God's abounding grace to you. My hope is not built. My hope for eternity, my hope in this life, my hope for everlasting life, my hope is not built by my ability to obey any kind of law. That's, there's no hope in that. My hope is not built on my efforts to limit the number of sins I commit. Oh, I'll just be really good and commit fewer sins with the hope that God's grace will outnumber my sins. Because my, I, I would fail. My hope is not built on anything that can point to my greatness or to my glory. No, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My hope is in the Lord who gave Himself for me and paid the price for all of my sin at Calvary. My hope is in Jesus Christ who lived the life I could not live. My hope is in Jesus Christ who died the death I should have died. My hope is in Jesus Christ who gave me life I should not have. And now... All I know is grace. Hallelujah. Harvest Bible Church, let us go this week and live to the praise of the glorious grace of our great God. Let us remember what God has done for us, this abounding grace that, that, that goes beyond our sin. Let's remember that He has done that for us. And by His grace, let us live to the praise of His glory even this week. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for prayer.